All right, you ready for this? Ready. Salami here. Welcome to this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. This week, we're going to explore the increasingly important element of connecting medical devices. Uh, that's the ability of devices to either talk to doctors and patients to doctors, just the ability for your devices to be more than just a therapeutic tool. I feel like we've been discussing this or promising medtech connectivity for years, but as you'll hear today, and as we've mentioned in the past, COVID-19 has really changed everything. It's really accelerated everything. And what we were planning to do someday is actually having to be done now. I mean, the inability of patients to go see their doctors just prove that we need to have a backup plan and that payers and regulators need to open up to the possibility that we don't need to go to the doctor's office if I've got a tick bite or poison ivy or, if, or even a, a follow-up to a surgery. There's, there's ways to get around it via telehealth. There's ways to check on patients via connected med tech. So, MedTech can actually handle a lot of the load, and we're going to hear about that. In a moment, we're going to visit with two very experienced medical professionals. One is Dr. David Hayes. He's the new, relatively new, chief medical officer of Biotronic, and he comes to the discussion as a physician. He was a cardiologist at Mayo for a few decades and opted to join Biotronic earlier this year. So we'll hear about his earlier views as a physician on remote monitoring. And interestingly enough, he'll share his his early thoughts on whether or not remote monitoring and connected tech was even necessary or even desired in medtech. And then we'll hear about how he's working today with Biotronic to uh, explore the potential for their products. And next we'll talk with our old friend, Bill Betton. Bill's been a longtime supporter of Device Talks, and now he's the Director of Solutions of MedTech at a really cool firm called S3 Connected Health. S3 is actually heading up a Device Talks Tuesday conversation we're having on this coming Tuesday. It's called, How Can MedTechs Win the Connectivity Race and What Happens Next? And S3 is working with MedTech firms on developing their own connected strategies. Bill's been a longtime proponent of this, and we'll get into that in the discussion with him. But uh, it was clear to everyone who watched MedTech's uh, response to COVID-19 that those companies that had plans in place were really able to uh, to pivot and to distinguish themselves from others during the pandemic. So Bill will be talking about the importance of those strategies and uh, really looking forward to sharing that expertise with you. For more information about this Device Talks Tuesday, sponsored by S3 Connected Health, go to devicetalks.com. But before we get into this discussion about connected medtech, Let's visit with my podcast partner, Chris Newmarker, the executive editor of Life Sciences at Mass Device. Chris Newmarker, how are we today on this fine Friday? Hey, we're doing well. Yeah, a nice, nice sunny day here in Minneapolis, so can't complain. Great. So we want to sort of uh, refine our, uh, our presentation of Mass Devices. You guys cover so much during the week. And, and there's so much going on in MedTech. We thought this would be a great opportunity for us to just really hone on what the top five articles of the week will be. So folks ending the week can kind of just get a sense of what were the high points? What were people reading? Because that's really the right barometer, right? What are people looking at? So let's let's start at, uh, we, can, we can rank them five to one, or would you rather just kind of hit upon? Yeah, I think let's just like talk about things that are, you know, that have been well read 
you know, kind of so like we'll just call like let's let's call it a mass device top five. That's we don't want to hurt any feelings. So yeah. So what was <laughs> what was our first of the most five well read articles on mass device this week? Uh, you know, we had um, you know news earlier this week that uh, FDA approved uh, Edwards Life Sciences, ready to it's the ready to implant uh, connect resilia aortic valve conduit. That's a mouthful, uh, but I mean, kind of the basic thing is that you know it's for these uh, very complex procedures called biobental procedures, where you're replacing somebody's aortic valve, aortic root, the ascending aorta, and you know, Edwards, as Edwards was saying, like, like you know, surgeons have, sometimes have to do this, you know, in you know, actually a third of the time they have to do this in an emergency setting, and and kind of the big deal about this is that you know this is you know they're saying this is the first you know pre-assembled option that's FDA approved. So really interesting technology out of Edwards. So I mean that that's definitely been one of the most read stories on the site this week. Um, you know another story that really uh, caught people's eyes, it caught my attention was uh, that, you know, Abbott and Edwards uh, settled, you know, a bunch of, uh, sp you know, patent spats related to transcatheter mitral and tricuspid repair products, you know, but, you know, this uh, transcatheter aortic valve replacements, uh, that's already a very hot area in medtech and, you know, transcatheter mitral you know, repair, replacement, it's kind of like the next big hot area. And, they, you know, they've been fighting all these patent battles over it. And, you know, they kind of like buried the hatchet and, you know, came to some, you know, terms over stuff. And the thing that I, I think is really interesting about the story is that, um, you know, it comes about a week after Medtronic and Tandem Diabetes Care. They said that they're, you know, they were burying the hatchet on their, uh, you know, patent dis disagreements over uh, insulin pump tech. So. So I mean, one one more of these types of stories. I almost feel like we're going to have a, a trend here. Yeah, this came this came up on our device talks Tuesdays a couple of weeks ago too, where the, the the sentiment of attorneys is that there's just such a backlog in courts that people are just opting for settlements because they just don't know when things are going to get really restarted in earnest again. So, uh, le like you, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw more of these uh, coming down the pike. Next, we have some some robot news. It seems a couple of bits of robot news. Let's start with. Are we saying Smith plus nephew now? Is that how we're saying it? Yeah, they're yeah, I know. They put a little plus sign in there instead of ampersand. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in that marketing meeting debating, you know, should we keep the ampersand or do a plus sign? So, you know, they announced, you know, they they were launching uh, their uh, next gen uh, Cori surgical system. You know, this is a, uh, you know, a robotic uh, knee surgery uh, system. And uh, yeah, this is kind of their next gen thing. Uh, Strikers had, um, a lot of, uh, of success with its Mako robotic systems. So all the other big companies in the space have been kind of like trying to compete with this, uh, you know, Zimmer Biomed, Johnson and Johnson, and, um, and, you know, here's Smith and nephew, they already had their previous Navio system. You know, now they've got the, you know, Corey robotic platform and, um, they're, uh, you know, they're kind of, um, you know, touting that it's, you know, faster than the Navio system, that, um, you know, that it's, uh, you know, you know, it can, uh, you know, handle twice the cutting volume, um, you know, that, you know, they're also saying like, hey, we, you know, we design in a way we could scale this to use for other types of orthopedic surgeries. So this is, this is kind of, you know, definitely like Smith and Nephew making a play here to, you know, to kind of try to get 
get more competitive in this in this space. And it'll be interesting to see like what else we see get released over the the next year or two. And you know, and that actually plays into a story that just broke today, um, which is that uh, you know Johnson and Johnson. Um, you know, this is an ortho surgery now. Now we're going to talk about general surgery robots, which is a space that intuitive surgical pioneered. They're still like the dominant player in this. Um, you know, J and J and Medtronic, they've been really working on their own, own technologies to, to, to get in there and compete with intuitive and, uh, you know, J and J during their earnings call yesterday, uh, their, their executives, you know, and they're kind of saying it kind of seems like they're saying they're going to take their time a bit on this. Um, you know, they said they're not going to, you know, follow a 510k clearance pathway. There's some mention to the fact that they've been talking a lot to regulatory authorities, you know, around the world. So maybe they just got the sense that whatever you know they're doing is um, is different enough that you know they're not going to do a clearance pathway with it. So they're going to do some real. They're, they're going to take a longer road here. And, you know, so now they're talking about doing first in human studies by the second half of 2022. So one of the five most read articles on mass device uh, was an interesting acquisition by, by Medtronic. Why don't you tell us about that? They're definitely uh, continuing to shop around. And I, I, I recall that, uh, you know, that, you know, Jeff, uh, Jeff Martha, you know, was saying that they felt they were in a good, you know, enough cash position to do acquisition right now. And yeah, they're buying uh, France-based uh, spinal surgery tech company, uh, Metacrea. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because, I mean, Metacrea, you know, they've got software, adaptive intelligence, you know, a lot of things to like help with the, uh, you know, preoperative, you know, planning. And that, that seems to play in really well to kind of like this whole ecosystem around spine surgery that Medtronic's been creating, including with robots. I mean, you know, they, they bought Mazer and, you know, Mazer is becoming a really um, hot area for them, you know, with uh, the robot assisted spine surgery. So this seems like something that I like, kind of just even boosted anymore. Um, you know, like they, they even talked about like, uh, you know, an integrated solution, including artificial intelligence, getting the AI in there. So, uh, so, so yeah, that's, that's kind of exciting too. I mean, um, and he's still, you know, working a lot of innovation. So it's, it's, it's exciting to see Metdex still, you know, we aren't, we aren't at a standstill here. We're just frozen. No, sir. We're moving forward. All right. Well, lots of great stuff on mass device. Those are just five of the stories. So I invite people to go to massdevice.com and, and check it out for themselves. And Chris Newmarker, thanks for uh, giving us the top five. Hey, always a pleasure, Tom. Take care. All right, so now you have a lay of the land. That was the week in MedTech. Thanks to Chris Newmarker and the team at Mass Device for chronicling MedTech events. Now let's get into this week's conversation about connected MedTech. I first spoke with Dr. David Hayes. As I said at the top, he's now the chief medical officer at Biotronic. He said he joined earlier this year after last year deciding he needed a change. Uh, his term was up as the head of cardiology at Mayo. Apparently, they have term limits there, and I didn't realize that, two four-year limits. So he, after several decades uh, as a cardiologist, decided he wanted to do something different and uh, had always enjoyed the people at Biotronic and enjoyed the company and its products. So the opportunity came for him to join, and he came aboard as CMO and came aboard just prior to the pandemic 
and has spent the past few months sort of helping Biotronic, as other device companies are doing, navigate this new terrain. So in this conversation, we talked about Biotronic's connected technologies, what they're capable of, and why they're important. And I'll also talk with Dr. Hayes about his changing stance on connected medtech. Let's listen. Well, Dr. David Hayes, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. How is Biotronic using its, uh, its technology and adapting it to operate in this COVID world? I know you had the biomonitor uh, study that you filed that talked about the temperature sensing capabilities of your devices. Are you finding opportunities to sort of heighten connectivity and, and cap- connectivity capabilities or connected capabilities of your devices and how they might help treat or detect people with, 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 the, with the virus? Yeah, it's a very important and timely question. Um, the most important thing is that, you know, with, um, with, with implantable cardiac devices, we've had for 20 years what we call remote monitoring. And in fact, Biotronic was the pioneer in that technology. And I've told people, um, because this is true, that in 2000, Biotronic came to me as a a key opinion leader, uh, quote unquote, in the field to explain their home monitoring. That's the name of the remote monitoring system. And uh, they were the first. And I went through, I actually have a slide that lists these. I went through about eight reasons why it would never work. Uh, Patients wouldn't accept it. Physicians wouldn't accept it. uh, On and on and on. I have been proven wrong on every single point. And I've said that long before I went to Biotronic with this job. But the difference in Biotronic's uh, home monitoring and others' remote monitoring is patients that have a device, they get a little gadget that is uh, has its own power source. It, it doesn't need any special connectivity. It's got worldwide cellular connectivity. So it's really plug and play. So they get that there's a daily transmission. So it's really this security blanket for all concerned, the patient most importantly, but also for their physicians, that there is a daily interrogation, a daily download of information about what's going on with their device. And if there are some issues, those are set up in a traffic light system so that alerts are issued back to the physician. So We've been relying on this for a long time, but now in the COVID era, to get to your question, it's even more important because patients just almost really rarely need to come in to be seen for a routine check. It can all be done remotely. Uh, One of the other things is when I was implanting, we would keep our patients, our new implants overnight to make sure that everything looked okay the next day, even though It's been proven patients could go home and come back the next day, minimize that night stay in the hospital. But with the Biotronic home monitoring, it's possible for them to go home right after the implant, minimize their time, especially when they're concerned about COVID-19, go home, have the device check remotely the next day, um, and avoid that completely. Um, And Biotronic recently added a feature whereby a physician on demand can ask for a quick check or an on-demand check and uh, get a response in less than 10 minutes. So that if if a patient called me right now and said, I've had a shock, I'm concerned about what's going on, 
as a physician, I could contact Biotronic. They could do an automatic query, and I'd have that information in 10 minutes. So we've really tried to optimize that remote monitoring, home monitoring um, capability. How do you see Biotronic moving forward to really heighten your connected capabilities and, and really sort of playing a larger role in, I guess, not only managing heart disease, but perhaps giving patients and physicians the opportunity to measure other conditions as well, including potential viruses like this one? Yeah, I, I think, you know, first of all, um, the pandemic in general, as we've seen the need to rely more on telemedicine and telehealth, right. and as the government eased the regulatory requirements for doing so, because it, it, it hasn't really been for a long time a technology issue. It's been an issue of licensing and, and regulatory issues. And because of the immense and efficient usage of this since the pandemic, there's no putting that genie back in the bottle. You know, we're going to need to continue doing this, and patients love it. So to your point, uh, the temperature sensing, honestly, I didn't even realize because it's not something uh, we have previously sought FDA approval for, but that that was a capability of our Biomonitor 3, uh, the implantable loop recorder. Um, so then when we started looking back at some of that data that's, uh, that is available, we saw some really interesting correlations of patients that had suspected COVID and the fact that, you know, what might be a really fairly low-grade temperature elevation was showing up in the data that was collected on these daily transmissions. But so that, that in itself is a, is a relatively limited issue. But again, it's just one more thing to think about that if a patient has a device that can also monitor temperature, whether it be for COVID or if it's looking for some post-operative infection or anything that can cause a systemic febrile response, um, it could be important. It also means that we will double down on looking at other disease management, and one of the big ones will be for heart failure. Uh, we've got resynchronization devices that we use very successfully for heart failure patients. We collect a lot of that data, but I think now it will become incumbent on us to say, how can we even more effectively collect, analyze, and clinically utilize that data to, uh, to optimize quality of life for our heart failure patients? Same will be true for other chronic disease issues like diabetes and uh, hypertension, a number of other things. Do you see physicians or have you seen physicians using your systems to monitor those patients who have not been, have not wanted to come into the hospitals and perhaps checking those numbers and saying, yes, I know you're scared, but you need to get in here. Is, is that going to be how things are managed going forward that there may be a pro, I mean, you're checking the data obviously anyway, but is this going to be something to, to give patients the prod they need to come in and get the necessary treatment? You know, I think one of the main things that we'll do for cardiac implantable devices is, you know, historically we've had our defibrillator patients come in for an in-clinic check um, on a fairly routine basis. Uh, pacemaker patients used to all the time, now a little bit less so, 
But what we found is that those routine are usually non-actionable. Everything's fine. There's no need to do anything. So I believe that what this will drive us to is doing more of those routine, non-actionable checks remotely and only bringing people in when there's a suspicion that we need to actively do something. We need to have them in the office for programming, or perhaps they need another procedure. Um, and I think for heart failure patients, even though uh, we've already seen that uh, paying attention to the monitored data that we have available, that we can minimize readmit or heart failure hospitalizations for patients if we're carefully watching that data, I think we'll just get better at synthesizing that data and looking for the early warning signs and minimizing somebody going from early heart failure into marked decompensation. Do you see going forward that technologies or new devices developed within Biotronic and perhaps others outside of the company that you may or may not, that you may look at as partners or potential, will they need to have some comprehensive connected function? I mean, are we, are, are, is this just an assumption now that med, most med tech devices are going to need to have an ability to connect patients with, with physicians? I, I think that, uh, yes, I think the implanted devices definitely need to have that connection to be able to collect the data and successfully understand how to use the data you're collecting because it hasn't always been the case. Um, I also think that we will um, need to find the optimal way to pass that information on to our patients. You know, we could easily overwhelm patients with data because patients more and more want to know what's going on. Some of them want direct access. Many of them want direct access to the data. So we have to figure out how to best connect with them through our app, which is available. What, what, what data should we share with them? and in a way that's going to be useful to them. So more and more for patients with chronic disease management, I think that'll be increasingly important. What, what changed in 2000? You said that patients will never accept it, physicians will never accept it. What didn't you, remote monitoring tech, what, what didn't you foresee? What, what's different? Yeah, so it was a lot, because uh, I, again, was wrong on really every point. But you know, we had all of these patients that really liked coming in and seeing the nurses, especially that they talked to on the phone two out of the three months or whatever it was. And I thought they'll miss that connection. But patients love the efficiency of not having to drive somewhere and find parking and everything else. Um, I was concerned that we would be so overwhelmed with the data that it would cause more work rather than less work. But we've proven that it decreased, and in very specific trials Biotronic has done, um, that it may decrease workload uh, by as much as 40% for clinic personnel. Um, I also thought that what if you got data that came in on a Friday night and it wasn't looked at until Monday and something happened over the weekend? What about litigation? In fact, just the opposite has been proven in the very early, again, it was a biotronic study, it was called the TRUST study. Uh, what we found is that problems were identified on average more than 30 days earlier with home monitoring than they were with conventional office visits. So actually from the standpoint of protecting the patient, 
It was just the opposite of what I projected. And to my knowledge, there's been no precedent case uh, about what I was concerned about in 2000. So, you know, you could just check them off one by one. And truly, I was wrong on everyone. <laughs> Technology certainly has, uh, has developed quickly since since 2000. And at that time, it was it was accelerating at, a, at an alarming pace. But uh, excellent. Well, thank you for your, your time and your candor. And uh, I really enjoyed, uh, really enjoyed talking to you. No, thanks for having me. Appreciate the time. Take care. All right, next we're going to talk with Bill Betton. As I mentioned at the top, Bill is working with a firm called S3 Connected Health. S3 is helping medtech companies to develop their strategies, to help develop their technologies so they are ready for the connected world. And Bill will talk with, uh, with me and David Knapp, the Vice President of Research and Development at Boston Scientific, on the upcoming Device Talks Tuesdays. So go to devicetalks.com. It's really a, a fascinating discussion. As I said, we've been talking about connected health for a very long time, but uh, it's clear that the, the time is now for having one of these plans in place. We're, not, we're no longer telling you to eat your vegetables. This is, uh, this is a need to have. So I hope you'll uh, check out devicetalks.com and uh, make sure that you're uh, joining us on Tuesday at 4 p.m. So now let's get into this conversation with Bill Betton of S3 Connected Health. Well, Bill Betton, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Tom. Glad to be here. All right, Bill. So we have gone through four months of COVID-19. This has afforded the opportunity for medtech companies to respond differently. How overall did the sector respond to the new de demands and the new realities of, uh, of the pandemic? We did see a pretty good pivot. I think every startup in the world who could possibly link their uh, startup to something to do with COVID-19 right. tried to make that pivot. Uh, so there were a lot of new apps, new uses, new things that came out. But in reality, four months isn't very long in, in terms of development for a traditional med device or even, even an app. So it's really hard to say we invented something brand new for this. But there were interesting examples. For example, the hearing aid business. Uh, immediately, you saw a number of the largest hearing aid manufacturers, which traditionally have relied upon going to audiologists, being fitted, getting your hearing aid in, in a very structured, controlled environment. Uh, they immediately announced the ability to fit via telemonitoring and, and, and remote fitting and that sort of thing. So they pivoted very quickly, again, for an you know, auxiliary use, which is hearing aids, uh, using capabilities that they probably had in place, but it forced a change in their business model because people couldn't go uh, to the audiologist and, and, and get fitted. So uh, a big impact, primarily though, with regard to changes in regulations that allowed people to get doctors and physicians and clinics to get paid for telemedicine visits. So clearly the technology has not changed over those four months, but where we're seeing the changes are in the regulations, in the reimbursement, how long lasting are you, or how permanent, I should say, are you anticipating those changes will be? Have we sort of, as an industry and as a, a society, have we turned the page to where these telehealth and these remote monitoring uh, opportunities are here to stay? Boy, I hope so. But uh, I, I think there's a big concern about what happens after the current crisis passes. 
Uh, I've been doing telemedicine for over 25 years. I go back to the days of DICOM and teleradiology and, and sending images uh, around the U.S. Uh, now we're in the era where everybody's got a, a computer in their pocket and, and teleconnectivity, uh, and we're connecting you know, $50 uh, uh, weight scales and $100 pulse oximeters. And so we're, we have the technical capability to connect all these things and do it. So as a technical person, it's gratifying to see the technical changes that have evolved. But some of the things you mentioned are really structural, or, or I'll call them infrastructure for our medical system. The, the changes that were implemented with the changes in regulations, the reimbursement, that facilitates it. It, it, it puts the money in being able to utilize some of the services that have been around for a while. I do think there's a very valid concern uh, that, that's been evidenced by uh, both physicians and uh, the med device companies that say, what happens after COVID-19? I know there's been a letter to the Center for Medicare Services talking about can we keep some of these regulations uh, and, and reimbursements in effect afterwards. I'm hopeful that that will, that will be the case. I think this has uh, alerted people to the fact that they should be considering how to connect their devices and their technology uh, because even if it's not directly related to COVID, you find out that uh, how hard it is to do things. Uh, you, know, you can't always do things in person. So whether it's working from home or visiting a doctor or doing whatever, we're finding that perhaps teleconnection is a good way to go. Well, that's actually a great point because, I mean, we've been talking about the need for medtech startups to have a connectivity plan. You and I had talked previously for an article I was writing, and you said every medtech needs to have a plan. In a way, though, at the time, it sounded like almost like the old Asia strategy used to sound when every company had to have an Asia strategy. Whether they were going to go in Asia or not, it was just a good good thing to have in the toolbox. But Lo and behold, here we are, you know, those companies that had a connectivity plan were able to pivot and to, to move really quickly. So I think this, this really demonstrated the importance of those plans. So what, what does a connectivity plan, what, is a, what does it look like and what, how do startups sort of need to approach this? Well, and it's not just startups, it's the, the, the large companies, the tier ones as well. But uh, so you need to think about who your users are going to be both for the therapy or the device or the app, whatever it is, think of your users first. What's your business model? Are you in the business of, of diagnosing or treating something? Or are you at a point where you're saying, I'm gonna be a services provider and do analytics on data? What's going to happen with the data? You know, what are you gonna gather? Where's, where's it gonna go? Security's a huge issue. None of us wanna be hacked uh, uh, for anything, whether it's financial data, health data, or just our personal identity. So where's all that stuff gonna go? Um, and you need to take all of that into account in designing, and I'm gonna take a hardware-centric view initially. When I'm building that device, I'm going to look at it and say, what information am I going to need out of it and where's it got to go? And I'm, I should build that connectivity in right away. I urge people when they're doing new hardware designs because the design cycles are long, um, the approval cycles are long, and the changes uh, to hardware and software are, are monitored. So if you're going to do it, Design it in even if you don't have a plan in place uh, initially, because if you've got the hardware there, then software upgrades and, and enabling that make it a little bit easier. And finally, then after you've got that in place, I really encourage people to consider what your strategy is 
I, I touched on elements of that, but um, I, I work with a company called S3 Connected Health, and, and we'll be talking about this in, in our uh, Device Talks Tuesday next week. A company needs to have its strategy in place, and we'll work with them to define and outline that strategy. Uh, it's always better if you have a strategy before you go into the product development, but in some cases, you can go back and, and, and retrofit it afterwards. You can't, however, if you haven't made provision for gathering that data. And you mentioned Device Talks Tuesday. We're, we're fortunate to have David Knapp of Boston Scientific uh, with you, appearing with you on that, that webinar. And that's an example of a company that, that has had a plan in place and has been executing. And tell us a bit as to what David will be talking about uh, on Tuesday and, and what Boston Scientific has accomplished. Well, I, I won't speak for Boston Scientific, but I'm pleased to have David uh, join me in the discussion of how companies are transitioning from being device-centric to being patient-centric, up to and including the services that you can offer in Connected Health. And so David and I will be talking about that with you. And David specifically will be providing an example of how Boston Scientific has developed a, a, a product using connectivity to provide new and improved capabilities uh, and improve healthcare for patients. So uh, we're both excited about talking about this uh, evolution in technology and where it's headed. And uh, he should have a great example uh, showing how Boston Scientific is addressing that as well. That'll be great. Two, two great perspectives. And final question, just I guess I'm asking you to put on your, your future hat or your future goggles. What does this all look like, say, four or five years from now? You know, what, what, how does, how does the, what is the integration of digital tech, connecti connectivity, and med tech look like? Wow. In five years, I expect to see a, a, a database of me as an individual in, in healthcare. Uh, real quickly, I did my, after years of doing this, I had my first personal telemedicine visit with my physician uh, about a month ago as a follow-up to surgery I'd had a year previous. It worked well, uh, and, and it was because he had access to the data. I stayed within my health plan. He had access to all my data, so he could pull up my MRIs. He could have access to all the lab results, and it worked really well. There are many systems in which that wouldn't work because if I had wandered outside of the confines of his EHR and what he was doing, he wouldn't have access to that. So I'm hopeful that we will have uh, a database of connected uh, information that, that is mine. I think we'll have a, a network of connected devices, the so-called Internet of Medical Things, which will allow devices to talk and communicate and be integrated. Not just weight scales and, and pulse oximeters, but, mm -hmm. but uh, pacemakers and defibrillators and you know, blood glucose meters and all those devices that will contribute to, to monitoring my, whole, my health from a holistic viewpoint as opposed to an individualized application-specific area. Um, and that would allow us to put together best of breed and, and look at all the information going on for me uh, from a, a, a holistic viewpoint. And I hope we will have moved from being a reactive medical system where we're treating a condition or an episode uh, to a, a, a situation where we're treating things proactively, where we're monitoring the health ahead of time and taking care to really impact the behavior of the individual by giving them more knowledge about what's going on. I think then finally, it's really enabling information flow from the physician to the patient and to the patient's loved ones, whether it's at the hospital and clinic, whether it's in a home environment, 
or it's mm-hmm. when I go mobile and am living an active retired life or something like that or living with my, with my condition. So I'm hopeful that that's the case from a technological point of view. In order for that to happen, we're going to have to have regulatory changes. We're going to have to have reimbursement changes. And we go back to that uh, infrastructure modification that I talked about. Well, I, I certainly I, I hope that we do see those changes coming. I mean, we do have the tech uh, we just need the will, and as as we've seen, unfortunately, during all of this, sometimes the will is is the hardest thing to muster. So, I'm really uh, excited, though. I think this is an opportunity to really to grow from this experience, and and it's going to be a fascinating conversation on on Tuesday. Thanks for uh, thanks for being part of it. Thanks very much. Look forward to a more extended conversation on Tuesday. All right. Well, that is a wrap. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's Device Talks Weekly Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation about connectivity. Hope you enjoyed the update on the Mass Device Top 5 articles from a podcast partner, Chris Newmarker of Mass Device. If you want to find Chris on social media, he is at Newmarker, as in a Newmarker. That's his Twitter handle. You can also find him on LinkedIn. I am on LinkedIn, Tom Salemi, and you can find me on Twitter at MedTechTom. Please reach out to both of us. Please share this podcast on social media and connect to both Chris and myself so we can be part of that conversation. Finally, do us a quick favor. Would you please subscribe to the podcast? Give us a rating. Give us a rankings. Give us some comments and uh, let your friends know about the podcast. We'd love to have more people listening. That's it, folks. Tune in on Tuesday. We'll have our Device Talks Tuesday. How can MedTechs win the connectivity race and what happens next? And of course, tune in next week. We'll have another great episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast for you.